Hey, my name is Seth Como. Me and my family joined Redeemer this morning. We finished the <laughs> class and signed the piece of paper. <laughs> so um, today's scripture is Joshua 24, 19 through 28. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn to you, turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voices we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it under the terebinth that was the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be, witness, shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he has spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you, falsely, you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance." And Hebrews 8, 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he meditates is better, mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Seth, thank you. I gave you a long text to read this morning, so uh, kudos to you, man. did a great job. Uh, well, hey, good morning, church. Uh, welcome again to Redeemer. We're glad that you're here. Um, you met Ryan earlier. For those of you I don't know, my name is Brian. I'm one of the other pastors here. And really a couple things just before we dive into Joshua 24. First off, you know, Friday was uh, Veterans Day. and I know we have some, some veterans in our, uh, in our congregation. I just want to say thank you. Um, thank you just for, for serving our country. Um, what a grace it is um, just to get to gather here uh, on a Sunday morning and just uh, be able to do so freely. So if you have served, thank you so much for your service and kindness uh, in that way. So yeah. Also, just as to reiterate what uh, Elizabeth shared this morning, um, so Operation Christmas Child, definitely encourage you to get a box. Uh, I don't remember if this was said or not, but you can also get them at Hobby Lobby, um, to which they cost money. So Operation Christmas Child is this yearly reminder um, to all of you that your pastor is a thief. Um, uh, for some of you know the story, some of you don't. A couple of years ago, we grabbed a box because we, we were out of them at, at church. And so we went to Hobby Lobby and I just saw them right there on the display, grabbed it and left. And when we got home, I saw there was a price tag on it. So I didn't realize that they actually cost money. So we went back and we paid our, our $1.50 for the box. But anyways, I definitely encourage you to, to get a box uh, and, and participate uh, in just this opportunity just to share the gospel with the nations. And so anyways, so if you have your Bible, you haven't already turned there, go ahead and turn to uh, Joshua 24. Joshua chapter 24 is where we're going to be. We're also, we will be in Hebrews in a little bit. So thank you again, Seth, for, for reading. So really quick, 
As we get started this morning, let's start with some honesty, uh, because I think that's always a great place to start. How many of you have ever made a plan with somebody to only find out that a better plan was then later invited that you wanted to do instead? I see nods. Let me see the hands. Okay, there we go. So I, I, think, I think that's probably the case for a lot of us. A lot of us have probably at some point in our lives, I'm not gonna, we're not going to call you up and make you make the actual sharing, but some of us at some point have probably made a plan with somebody, and then after we made this commitment, something else better came along the way. Whether it's fear of missing out or, or what it is, I, I don't know, but, there's, but there's, there's always this thing within us that sometimes it longs for the better thing, Right? Um, and, and, and it's one of those things that most of us, as we think about that, uh, most of us would always desire better. Like, I think there's nothing wrong with us acknowledging that, like, hey, there are better things. Like, if we had the option of a five-course meal uh, versus a Happy Meal at McDonald's, I think most of us would choose a five-course meal. Maybe Happy Meal is your better. I don't know. Um, or, or if we, had a, we were offered an opportunity to, to take a free trip to the mountains or to the beach, whichever your preference is, um, and, or go take a tr- have a nice weekend in Coleman, Texas, I think we all know which one we would probably choose. No shade towards Coleman. It's a wonderful place if that's where you're from. Um, right? I, I, there, like I said, there, well, obviously always wanting the better thing can obviously lead to some kind of discontentment or lead to this, even a sinful discontentment. Um, it's, there's nothing wrong with acknowledging that just some things are better. It's nothing, there's nothing wrong with acknowledging um, that there are better things. In and of itself, it's not a bad thing. And so the question I want us to bring us today is, is kind of that around that uh, idea of what is better. As we think about our abiding in Jesus, how often do we settle for the less? How often do we settle for something that's far, far less than the goodness and the grace in which he provides for us? How often might we, how, how easy is it for us to look to this, to find uh, uh, us to be captured by other things of this world or, or to mix other loves with, with this love of Jesus? It's really easy for us, um, I think if we're honest, to walk in this tension that we long and desire to follow Jesus, but we find ourselves captured and captivated by other things. Or we find ourselves captured and captivated by a different way of doing things as, which, as opposed to the way he's called us to. And so it's one of those things that whether we are aware or unaware, the, the heart within us longs for this better thing. And, and, and it's so easy for us to be captured by other things. But my hope for us as we see in Joshua 24 that we get to see this little bit clear, more clearly that Jesus is better that Jesus is better. And so chapter 24 is going to really expose some things. He's going to expose and help us see why is Jesus better? What does it mean that he is better? What is the better specifically? And so if you're with us last week, um, Josh, we were in Joshua 23, and Joshua was giving his farewell speech really to the leaders of, of Israel and just the ones who are going to be setting the culture once he was about to pass away, which he's about to pass away. He's about to die. He's about to move on to be with, be with God. And so, but before he does, he gave this speech to the, to the elders and just warning them, hey, remember what God has done for you. Choose to follow him. 
And in Josh, in, in 24, you're kind of seeing a similar type speech, but instead of just the leaders, he's really addressing all the whole nation. And it's actually really interesting as, as to where he actually gathered the nations. He gathered them in a place called Shechem. Uh, Shechem was actually, you might remember in Joshua 8, it's, it's this town that's in between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, which was the Mount of Blessing and the Mount of Curse. And it was on that very soil in which God reaffirmed the promise to Abraham that, hey, one day I'm going to make a people from you, and I'm going to bring you to this spot. It was at this very location. So this location where Joshua brought them would have conjured all sorts of memories. They would have conjured all sorts of significance, historical significance, as it pertains to them being a people. And so what you see in the very first 13 verses was very similar to the first uh, eight or so verses in chapter 23. Joshua is just extolling the works of God. And what's actually interesting in this chapter, Joshua makes this shift from being a leader to prophet. He's, he switches from being a leader to a, a prophet. And the nature of his speech, like 23, is just telling them, reminding them, look what all God has done for you. He looks in verse 3, and he tells them that, hey, and he really, what he does is he gives a 30,000-foot God's eye view of their history as a people. He reminds them in verse 3 that, hey, God took Abraham, who was a pagan worshiper, away from that and, made, and, and promised to make him, through him, to bless all nations. He explains that God gave Abraham Isaac when Abraham was old in age. Couldn't have kids anymore, as a, at least what people thought you couldn't have anymore. He gave him a son, Isaac. And he, and he says in verse 4 how God gave Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. And then he, said, he also says that God gave Esau the hill country. He said, then he said God sent Jacob to Egypt. And then when they were in Egypt and they were, became slaves, uh, the text also says that God uh, gave them Moses and Aaron to help deliver them. In verse 6, it says God explicitly takes them out of Egypt. Verse 7 says God parted the Red Seas on their behalf. In verse 8, he says that God fought for them, and God gave Israel the ability to enter into this inheritance. In verse 10, he says that God uh, delivered them from Balaam's curse. This man who was originally hired to curse this nation could only bless them, right? God fought for them in verse 11 through 13. He's reminded that God fought for you and brought them to the promised land, this very, the very place in which they were standing. God brought them to this place. And the nature of what, and I want to encourage you, look through the verse 13 and, and look at all the times that you see God doing the thing. God being the initiator, God the one who is acting. And so the whole, these whole first 13 verses are a reminder to the people of Israel. Look at all that God has done for you. And then in verse 14, you see a little bit of a shift happen. This is when you kind of see more of the prophetic voice of Joshua starting to happen. You see that uh, as he's extolling the works of God, he responds, he gives them, says to them, this is how you are to respond. This is how you are to respond in light of all that God has done. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. Joshua says, now therefore, in light of all this, now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. 
and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What word do you notice is used in those, quite often in those first two verses, 14 and 15? Serve. Good job, y'all. Good job. Serve. And so what you see is that Joshua is laying out, okay, you have two options here. Okay, you, you can't do a mix of either. You have two options. Either you can serve the gods from beyond the river. And what he's essentially referring to is, hey, your ancestors, your fathers, this is who they chose to serve. Or what you can do is serve the Lord. What he makes very abundantly clear is one, as like I said, when we see, we see the famous statement, as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. Joshua makes this declarative statement of who he's choosing to serve. But what he's also saying, there was not an option for them to mix both. There was not an option for them to serve the gods for a little bit and also serve the God. That is not a possible thing. And so, and not to re-preach last week's message, but it's one of those reminders that, that an idol, again, for an idol to keep itself alive, it is dependent upon the one who's keeping it alive. Right? So, it, so when he says, put away the false gods, he's telling them, hey, it is going to be ultimately up to you to keep this idol alive. And if you're keeping this thing alive, you are not serving God. So put it away. Be done with it. Put it away. And so what we are seeing is that Joshua gives them these two options of who they're going to serve. And in this moment, um, what we see is that Joshua is reminding them that they were only to serve the one true God. That they were only to serve the one true God. And, and, And what we also see, what's interesting, think about this for a second why would he have told them to put away the false gods? That's a present command. Why do you think that? It's because there were still gods among them. There was still idol worship among them. And he says, put it away. And we see Israel respond in verses 16 through 18, essentially affirming all that God has done for them in verses 1 through 13. And they say, we will follow God. We will serve him which is an appropriate response, which is what you want to see. But listen to what Joshua responds, listen to what Joshua says in light of their response. Verse 19, but Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord for he is holy, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done good to you. What is being communicated here? What is being communicated here? So Joshua says, who are you going to serve? Israel says, we're going to serve the Lord. Joshua says, no, you can't. It's a little weird. But what, what is Joshua doing here? He is trying to remind them to not be flippant about this commitment they're making to the Lord. Not to not be flippant, to remind them that, that, whole, that God is holy. And if you are to worship him, he is not going to share his glory with another. That you cannot have your idol worship and worship of God. These things cannot coexist. 
And so when he's saying that God is holy, he's reminding that God is set apart. He is different. There is no other God like him. When he's saying that God is a jealous God, he's not saying, he's not talking about this petty jealousy that we experience when we look at somebody else's life, but rather it's almost similar to if you see someone trying to steal the affections of your spouse away from you intentionally, like that's going to cause some things in you, right? So Israel is God's children. He loves them. They're his people. And when he sees their hearts going after, it's this father-like, it's this husband-like or wife-like jealousy that comes up whenever you see someone trying to take that away from you. It's this jealousy that is jealous for the people that belong to him. And when he says that God will not forgive your transgressions or your sins, what does this mean? It's one of those things that it isn't saying that God won't forgive because he certainly will. You look at Exodus 34, God is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. But what, but what, what is he getting at here? It's, it's, he is reminding them that God will not tolerate idol worship. He will not, title, he will not tolerate idol worship. And ultimately, if someone is trusting in an idol anyways, if, you are, if, if someone is looking to this thing for life, they don't even need the forgiveness of God. You're essentially acknowledging, I don't need forgiveness. I don't, I don't need this. And so Joshua is reminding them that God is holy. He is a jealous God. And he will not tolerate idol worship. You cannot have both. He will not let his name profane. As it says in Isaiah 42, my glory I will not give to anyone else. I will not give my glory to another and so Joshua is helping them understand the weight of this commitment, that, this covenant that they're making. The weight that, that they are, are going to serve the Lord, that this isn't a flippant thing. And so they respond back after Joshua says, no, you can't. They says, no, yes, we will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. And so what Joshua does, then he begins this, covenant, or he, be, he then begins the covenant. They have right things on the stone. Um, but he also send, then says again, he also says then again um, in, verse, uh, um, in verse 22, sorry, 23, he says, then put away the foreign gods among you. Here's what I want us to catch for a second. Do you feel a little bit of disconnect in this text? Do you feel a little bit of the tension Joshua is telling them to serve the Lord alone. And he twice tells them to put away the foreign gods. And they, Israel twice says, we will serve the Lord. There's this little bit of tension here. There's a little bit of disconnect. One way to even just see it, this is kind of a silly way, but this is one way to, to see it, is I'm sure, I know this room is filled with Cowboys fans. Many of you probably don't have a collection of Eagles gear, Right? Unless you're an Eagles fan, Elias, I see you. You're representing. Sorry, man. Uh, not to highlight. Right? You're not going to, if you're a fan of a certain team, chances are you're not going to be wearing the rival team's swag. Right? That, there's a little bit of a disconnect there. It doesn't, it doesn't quite add up. And that's kind of what we see happening here. There almost seems to be this little bit of this tension and this disconnect. That Israel says, I'm going to follow the Lord. And Joshua then twice says, well, then put away the gods. Put them away. And so, if we're honest, 
And I want us to encourage it, you two. Do we not feel this? Even in our own lives, do we not feel this a little bit of disconnect? Because I do. I feel it in myself. We're not Israel. Let me make sure I make the point. We're not Israel. This text is not about 21st century Americans. This was a text about a specific time and a specific location. But there's something about this text that I do, I do think speaks to all peoples at all times in all places. That we, all of us, are prone to say one thing, to have this desire to follow Jesus. Yet with our lives, we still are gravitated and captured by other things. How many of you even just this week have felt this tension in your own life? Think about that. I'm not asking you to raise a hand. You don't have to raise a hand. But think about it. Have you felt this tension in your own life where you had, you know, like you want to follow Jesus. You love him. You even did, but hey, Brian, I, I, like I, you, did, you said last week, I remembered, right? I remembered all the things that he's done for me. I'm doing all the right things. You have this desire, but yet for whatever reason, there's still this pull away towards other things. There's this tension of like, no, I still want to serve the things that I think are going to give me life. I'll tell you, like for me this week, it has been such a week where I have been well aware of my own weaknesses. I've been well aware of my, me being the face of so many people's uh, disappointments and sadness. I know uh, I, I have caused just a lot of pain in my own life and to others. And as a result of that, what that does to my approval idol, this idea that I need the other acceptance of others, it has just killed it and has reminded me that I am so weak and unable, but yet I'm still so often trying to find life in a thing that cannot give it to me. Do you ever feel that? Do you feel that this week? The tension of desire and reality. And you give in to your lusts again. Did you give in to your gossip again? Did you give in to getting angry at your spouse or your kids again? Did you give in to using other people for power or for control or for comfort or for approval? Do you feel this disconnect for so often many of us experience that we have a desire to know and love the Lord. We have a desire to follow him, but there's so much within us that just pulls us away from that. That we are naturally gravitated towards the lesser. And sometimes we don't even have to try to keep our idols alive and they just pop up. Do you feel that? This is a pattern that many of us, I think, find ourselves in if we're honest. Sin is always crouching at the door. We want to put our idols away. We want to be away with them. We want to do what Joshua says and, and, and put them away and incline our hearts to the Lord, but they're so hard for us to be able to do that because sin can be so defeating. And a lot of times how we might respond is we might either respond by uh, just, all right, I'm just going to do better, try harder. I'm going to pull myself up on my bootstraps and see what I can do. Or you just might be defeated and be like, I'm done. You might feel like, I'm just going to hide. I'm going to hide this from other people. I'm going to hide this from God. And what we realize, all that does uh, is that it just creates a little vacuum of anxiety in our hearts that doesn't really deal with the issue. There's a bit of tension in Joshua 24 that I think we need to recognize that is a tension, if we're honest, we feel ourselves. That Joshua is telling them to serve the Lord telling them to serve the Lord, but he's also telling them you can't. 
That's tension. I want you to feel the weight of that. There's a tension that there's this thing within us. There's this proneness in us to find something else better. But there is better. But there is better. What is it? So after this sequence, Joshua, of Joshua um, saying, you can't serve the Lord, and they say, we will. Um, he sa- again, he says, put away the foreign gods. And he says, incline your hearts toward the Lord. And incline your hearts toward the Lord, the God of Israel. The nature of the covenant that he was making in this moment had more to do with their heart than their behavior. It had more to do with what was going underneath, with the cause of their idol worship, the cause of why they still had these things among them. He's essentially asking, who are you going to love? Who are you going to love? Where are your heart's affections going to be? And he's telling them, put them away, put them away from the things that won't give you what you think they'll give you. Incline your heart towards the Lord. And then when he says, um, in his response, he says that you are witnesses of these things to yourself. Uh, and essentially what they're witnessing too is they, uh, that they would, what we talked about last week, is that they would be a people who would love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, and soul. It's causing them to go back to the promise, really the, the original covenant that God made with Israel back in Exodus 19. That they would be his people and they, he would be their God. It's essentially renewing the covenant that God made with him back in Exodus 19, that he will be their God. So Joshua writes this on a stone um, to kind of make this permanent thing. Chances are there was a sacrifice that happened in this moment. And Israel agrees, we will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. And actually what's actually really cool is what we can kind of see from this generation. You look in verse 31 of Joshua. It says that Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. What we see in this moment of Israel's history is that you see a moment in which they were following the Lord. They were serving him. They were, by and large, following the covenant, keeping their end of the bargain, more or less. Um, And it's a a really beautiful thing. It's a really beautiful thing. We see this generation and the generation after follow. But you don't have to flip uh, but one page to Judges chapter 2 to realize that all of a sudden, this beautiful moment was quickly uh, not beautiful anymore. You see in Judges chapter 2, verse 2, it says, reminded that, that God's saying that you have not obeyed my voice. You have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? And you could turn throughout the whole, all the pages of the Old Testament And that almost seems like a beating drum and a mantra for the people of Israel. You have not obeyed my voice. You have not obeyed my voice. 
You have not put away the foreign gods. You are still a people who does not understand all the good that I have done for you. You are still a people who does not understand that I am the one true God, that my glory I will not give another, that there is no other idol that is worth who I am. You have not obeyed my voice. But what do we see God do? This is what we need to catch. Did God know Judges 2 verse 2 was going to happen in Joshua 24? And what does God still do? He steps in to the covenant. Turn over to Jeremiah 23, or sorry, Jeremiah 31. What we see God do also throughout all the Old Testament is that time and time again, despite Israel's disobedience, despite their unfaithfulness, he still steps in. But he also understands what we see in the Old Testament is this. We see that they're under this old covenant from Joshua 19, right? That they were to be a people uh, that belonged to God. They were to be a kingdom of priests. And how they lived, how they followed the law, how they obeyed was ultimately going to tell the world about who the one true God was. But yet we see time and time again that they failed. The old covenant didn't fully deal with their sin. It didn't fully deal with this this sin problem they had. But what we see also throughout Pepper throughout the Old Testament is that God is preparing something else. He's still stepping in to deal with the sin problem once for all. We see that in Jeremiah 31. Look in verse 33. Actually, go back into verse 31. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Judges 2 just proves that they broke that. But verse 33 says, But for this covenant, it, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, uh, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. What's going on here? There's a foreshadow of something better that's to come in which God was still going to step into the disobedience of sinful man to deal with their sin once for all. Turn over to to Hebrews chapter 6, chapter 8. So what's going on here? So, so, So Joshua 24 this covenant is made. Israel breaks this covenant. God still steps in. God still steps in. He still is wanting, he's still like going to do something to view once and for all the sinfulness and the idolatry of mankind. We see this glimmer of it in Hebrews, or sorry, in Jeremiah 31. And then we see in Hebrews 8, the culmination of it. He says in verse 6 of chapter 8, he says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as, that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For the first covenant, the one we see in Exodus 19, had been faultless. There would have been no occasion to look for a second. What was the better promise that Christ mediated? What was the better covenant that Christ mediated? Look in verse 
12. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. The better covenant, the better covenant is what Christ has done for us on the, on the cross. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, in which God still steps in. God steps into our weakness. God steps into our brokenness. God steps into this tension, this disconnect that we desire to follow him, but fully can't. He steps into that. He steps into that mess. And you know why he steps in? Because he loves us. God loves his people. He loves you in your weakness. He loves you in your brokenness. He loves you in the tension in which you would probably experience this week of giving into the things you hate that you're giving into. He steps into that. And we see as Jesus was perfect for us in a way that we could never be. He was perfect for us in a way that we could never be. And stepping into this covenant, stepping into this promise in which we get to be God's people, in which we get to experience his mercy, and he will remember our sins no more. We step in not by trying hard. We step in not by doing all the church things. We step in not by being good, good enough. We don't step in by trying to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We step in by faith and trusting that Jesus alone was enough. And that's it. If we believe that in our hearts, how might that affect us? If we believed that in the moments of our weakness, we don't have to try, but we can bring it to Jesus. Because Jesus steps into the tension. Jesus steps into the tension and disconnect of Joshua 24. Joshua 24 is but a shadow and pointer to what God was ultimately going to do through the person of Jesus. So God steps in. So think about the weakness that you might be feeling right now in your own life. This past week, where you feel like you've blown it, where you've messed up. Do you believe that Jesus steps into that? Do you believe that what the author of Hebrews says in, in, in Hebrews 4, that you can approach the throne of grace and receive help in the time of need. Do you believe that? Because what this means then in this new covenant, in this, this fulfillment of Joshua 24, is that you get to be weak. You are allowed to be broken. Because Christ, the one who's actually the one who's able to make you strong, is actually the one who's going to do that for you. He's the one who's going to help you. And so we think about what Joshua says in Joshua 24, uh, to put the idols away, put, put, put them to death. How, how do we do that? We got to see repentance as an invitation, not as a bad word. We turn, repentance just means turn. So when we're turning from our sins and God is helping us see what our sins are, what a gift that is. Like, wouldn't you want your friend to tell you you're heading towards a cliff um, to turn around? Like, if you're running, like, towards the Grand Canyon, you don't see the cliff, and you, like, wouldn't you want someone to tell you? 
when God, through his spirit, illuminates our sin and our brokenness, man, repentance of it is the invitation to trust more in the grace of God. And that's where we find our strength. God steps in to the brokenness. God steps in to, the, to our weakness. And we get to respond in repentance. We put our sin to death, but not by trying hard, but we, we take it to Jesus and trust that he's already dealt with it. And so Joshua, again, 24, is this shadow and is this pointer uh, to what Christ ultimately came to do. It's this Joshua 24, we see God stepping in uh, to a covenant with the people that he knew that they were eventually going to break. God steps in to a covenant with his people knowing that they were going to not obey his voice. And when God calls us out of darkness, calls us out of our sin and brings us into his marvelous light, he reminds us that ultimately hope and salvation is found in the person and work of Jesus. When he does that, he does so knowing that we're still sinful. And he doesn't need our performance to be able to keep this coming, but rather he needs our hearts. And when we go to him and when we trust in him, when we repent, when we look to him for our strength, when we abide, when we pray, that's what we're doing. That's where our strength, we're going to the one who can actually provide strength for us. So how do we take our idolatry seriously? We go to the one who can help us. And so I want to return to the question that I began with. And band, you guys can go ahead and come on up. I want to return to the question I started with. How often do we settle for less? How often do we settle for a way about thinking about God in which we think he is requiring our uh, actions and our performance? Or how often do we try to fix ourselves as opposed to going to the one who can help and heal us? How often do we still return to the other idols and, and are captured and captivated by other things of this world? My hope and encouragement for us to this morning is that we would be thrilled by what Christ has done for us and that we would see all the more the reason to go to him, all the more reason to put to death our idols and all the more reason um, just to trust him with our lives and our hearts. Because in Christ, you will find rest and you will find satisfaction. In Christ, you will find all the help you need to put your sin to death. In Christ, you will find that you are allowed to be weak. You are allowed to be broken because he is strong. In Christ, you'll be able to find help in the time of need, which let me tell you right now is 24-7, which is all the time. In Christ, you will find a savior who steps into your mess because he loves you and he wants what's best for you. And a lot of times what's best for you is helping you see the hard things about yourself, helping you see your own sin and brokenness. And by his grace, through his spirit, he helps transform us and turn from those things. We settle for less when we ultimately trust in ourselves to try to fix ourselves. We will settle for the better when we ultimately turn to Jesus 
and all his grace and his mercy and what he's done for us on the cross to be what actually we look to for life. And that's what we get to do when we partake in communion this morning, is that we get to remind our souls of where our life and where our hope comes from. We get to remind ourselves of where our hope is. When we drink the juice that symbolizes the spilled blood of Christ, we're reminded that his death on the cross ultimately was what was the final sacrifice needed to deal with our sins. When we eat the bread that symbolizes his broken body for us, we're reminded that ultimately on the cross, he broke uh, sin. He dealt with sin, and he dealt with our greatest enemy, which is death, because now in him we get eternal life. So as we partake in communion today, remind and ask the Lord, would you help me know you more? Would you help me not settle for less, Lord? Would you help me look to you for my life? Would you help me, Lord? Just as a reminder as well, communion is for the believer. If you are not a follower in Jesus this morning, we would just ask you to refrain from the elements, but we would ask you to consider Jesus. If you have a question, if you're here with a friend, um, or if you have any of these things that you're just wanting to ask, ask them, turn to them. After the service, come talk to one of us. We'd love to just answer any questions you have, but we, just, we do ask that you would refrain from the table because this is for um, the believers. And so as we take this morning, remind yourself, what is the better? What is the better? Jesus is the better.